when we realize stuff like this, it's hard not to be angry. It's hard not to think, what's it going to take? If it takes a global pandemic that's killed millions of people, how much more do we need for people to stand up and say, okay, it's time to stop and change today? Not at 2030, not at 2050, but today, right now, we need to stop and make a difference. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we meet the incredible Roxy Furman, aka Roxy the Zoologist. She's a wildlife biologist, photographer, activist, filmmaker, and presenter. She has a passion for animals and the natural world and uses social media to share this with others, regularly posting content with the goal of reconnecting people with animals and inspiring them to get involved with conservation initiatives. Roxy worked as the photographer Humans of XR campaign for the Extinction Rebellion group, leading to editorial coverage in papers such as The Metro and The Guardian. Roxy has hosted public talks about photography, conservation and sustainable living, including ones for Greenpeace and VegFest. Roxy is a vegan and the founder and owner of her own business, Zephyr Eco Market, where she sells a range of eco-friendly and sustainable products, encouraging people to indirectly help animals through the way they live their lives and through support of two charities, One Tree Planted and Painted Dog Conservation UK. I met Roxy a long time ago at a festival event where I was doing one of my very first public speaking events. Roxy sold me an amazing piece of kit, which is a egg that goes in your washing machine and you can use it over and over again. I think it lasts about a year. You never have to buy washing powder again. And I absolutely loved it. And we caught up again on this podcast and then all about what Roxy's been up to. And it's been an incredible ride for her and journey. You'll love this podcast. I did too. And as always, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a message on there. Please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Thanks so much for listening. And let's get to this week's episode. Hi, Roxy. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. What a pleasure it is to uh, meet you and sit down with you. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for having me on here today, Robbie. Okay, hello everyone, my name is Roxy. Currently there's a lot of discussions going on about the state of our planet, but there's often very little evidence presented to support these discussions. Reaching this place of care and understanding for our planet happens through a journey, and that this journey is different for each and every one of us. So before we get started and learn all about your wonderful and amazing achievements of the current day, let's go back in time and tell us your plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? For me, it began right from birth. I was really lucky to be brought up by a mum who raised us as vegetarian. So we were brought up being taught that we don't eat other animals because we love them. So as a child growing up, for me, it was strange that I was seen as the weird one at school who was kind of questioned and picked on when for me, that was a no brainer of the way to live your life that lived alongside your values of loving animals. But at the same time, I lived in a household where my mom was vegetarian. She raised us that way, but my dad never was. So I was always aware of this different mindset of different people in society and kind of as I got older and started to understand things more, realized that through my activism, I needed to do things in a way that convinced other people to change that mindset for themselves. Because if I forced this information onto them and they didn't truly believe it and didn't have that mindset, they weren't going to then want to have this long-term change. And then I went to university to study zoology 
And I remember one of my first ever lectures, we were taught about how in history, we've had these five major mass extinction events. But they didn't teach us that we are now following the same pattern today as we were then. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction because of the way which we're living our lives and the way which we treat other non-human animals. And I felt that I couldn't call myself a conservationist living in the world that I live in here in England in a really privileged position if I wasn't doing everything that I could to live my life in a way which minimised my impact on other beings. So that's when I then became vegan. Humans also have all the biological attributes of a herbivore. We have a digestive enzyme in our mouth. Carnivores and omnivores do not. We have lots of lateral jaw motion. Carnivores and omnivores have entirely vertical jaw motion. We have a low acidity in our stomachs, and they have a high acidity in their stomachs. They have a short, smooth intestinal tract designed for the rapid transition of rotting flesh. Humans is long, about five times the length of our body, and it's ribbed on the inside, designed to hold food. And this list could go on and on, but the point is that we have the biology of the herbivore. We're literally not designed to eat meat. You are uh, a biologist, but you also call yourself a zoologist. So what's the difference between biologist and zoologist? (laughs) Well, it's funny because when I picked my degree, I actually chose zoology over biology because I had no interest in plants. And zoology is literally biology, but you don't have to do the plant modules. You just do the human and non-human animal modules. And now I'm plant obsessed. My house is filled with plants and I'm like, damn, why didn't I choose to do full biology? I would have known so much more. But yeah, that was just kind of where my interest lied. And people always think, oh, you did zoology, so you must work in a zoo. But it just stems from the Latin word of animals. And I think we often forget that humans are included in that bracket as well. We are, of course, animals ourselves. And what is the day-to-day life of a zoologist, biologist? What do you, and wildlife biologist, what is your kind of your average day made up of? Well, I actually, after I did my undergrad, went on to study a master's in wildlife filmmaking. So I kind of combined the science and my love of animals and conservation and wanting to do something to help them as a species and also kind of entertainment and engagement because there's so much scientific research out there that's often not portrayed in the greater news and on social media and even if it was it's often not in a digestible way um so I feel like wildlife filmmaking really allowed me to bridge the gap between science and entertainment and bring more people on board with stories about conservation and animal activism so another thing to note once you set up your camera trap is you want to make sure that there's no branches, leaves like this, say this leaf was overhanging over the sensor there, that's going to blow in the wind and maybe cause this to go off rather than an animal coming past because you want the battery on this to last. I've spent some time on your website and I've seen a lot of your work on social media and exquisite and beautiful don't come close to some of the images and what you what you are creating what you continue to create uh as what what i feel is is an art it's an artistry so well done for for crafting such beautiful imagery because i think i truly believe that art is the way to open hearts and minds and we are if we're fortunate to have vision we're most humans are creatures of the eye and our emotions are often stirred by beautiful imagery or beautiful film 
in in our daily lives i mean how how important do you think is this method in unlocking the realization within others of the impending oblivion that potentially face that faces our entire planet yeah i think art is really powerful because for me it's a form of gentle activism in the way our society is formed if you're living in a city very little would you see a cow walking past on the street or a chicken running down the road or even things like foxes and badgers we've depleted our wildlife here so by you going out there with this long lens and sitting in the field for days and days and days and getting that shot of it looking at you as if you're like being stared at soul to soul and you can then share that image with others and they feel like they're looking at that being looking into its eyes seeing it as an individual when you see something as an individual and you fall in love with it you then can't hurt it and I think that's really powerful and that's why it's such an amazing tool to inspire people to then want to change their actions. Absolutely well said. With regards to what you said there about seeing animals as individuals, why do you think so many people struggle to see animals as individuals? I'm going to take fish as an example. They are, or fishes as I like to call them, <laughs> rather than fish. <laughs> it's not a real word, but I think it should be, you know, rather than this this sort of, you know, amorphous mass of of, of organic matter, they are billions and trillions of individual creatures with uh, their own thoughts and feelings. Because as we know, fish do have feelings. Mm -hmm. But why do you think, for the most part, people seem so disconnected from the reality that animals are individuals with their own thoughts and minds and, you know, dreams? I think the whole way our society is constructed typically teaches people that they're not individuals. They don't have thoughts and feelings they aren't capable of forming relationships and thinking for themselves because if people don't see these beings as individuals it will be easier for then the system to sell them food and other products that harm them if it was commonly thought that these beings were intelligent sentient beings which of course we know they are people wouldn't want to buy them and then people that have investments in these practices would be out of pocket you know even the language that we use in our society we have different words for these food groups like you don't say oh I'm having cow for dinner people mm -hmm. say I'm eating a steak they don't even want to kind of address that with the Lexus that they're using if you don't know the gender of an animal people say it you would never call another human being it but it's become accepted in our society to use this language. Even if you're annoyed with someone, you know, that people say, oh, she's a cow or these derogatory terms. Speciesist language, right? Yeah. And it makes it okay to then consume them and treat them badly because of the whole construct of society. It's incredible, really. And I think this is what the whole point of veganism is the counterculture to carnism, carnism being the dominant ideology that is ex exists on, on earth today. And it's deeply entwined with speciesism, which puts the importance of some animals above others. But carnism is this idea, a phrase coined by Dr. Melanie Joy, a psychologist who said that, you know, most humans are taught and are given a belief system as, as children 
completely unaware that they're being given this belief system that eating and killing animals is normal, needed, and necessary, and that it is is an intrinsic part of life. And it, yes, it is true. It is normal. You know, ninety nine percent of humans kill animals, eat animals, and see animals as nothing but objects. Mm. Um, and it is fascinating to be part of a culture, a new culture of human beings, who have seen beyond that and realized that actually we don't need to cause unnecessary suffering for our survival. So you, let's go back to your work and, and, and how you create and produce your artistry. How do you decide where to begin with your filmmaking or your photography? Like how do you, where do you, where do you, with, with so many places to visit and so much opportunity out there, obviously a bit harder now in this mm. post-pandemic world, but how do you, how do you decide where to, to look for animals and, you know, what inspires you to, to make those trips? Normally now I find stories through social media and it's funny because social media gets a lot of stick, but I think if it, you use it as a tool and you use it correctly for your craft, it can be incredible and it can help you find people in all wakes of life, in all areas of the world, doing incredible things. And those are stories that can be really, really powerful and are often not told. And social media allows you to distribute content that you maybe couldn't distribute on broadcast television, for example, because of how our system's set up. So I try and find stories that stir something in me emotionally, something that makes me think, okay, I want to tell this story because it makes me feel a certain way. And if I feel that way, and I've not even been there, I've not even experienced that yet, I can definitely, when I capture that, make others feel that same way. I also try to look for stories about animals that are maybe not very well represented in the conservation sector. Um, for example, my undergrad research was on African painted wolves. At the time, they were called African painted dogs, but because of the lack of conservation going towards them as a species, they've actually changed their name to try and make them sound cuter because of the science of cute as a society. If we see something as cute, we are more inclined to want to help it. So telling those stories, making people realize, you know, these are incredibly social beings. They have an intricate social structure, just like our own. They care for their young, they care for their elderly, likening them to how we see us and how we see our societies functioning, I think really helps people then connect to them. Whatever it is that gets someone to connect, I think that's like the really important thing, especially when it's the younger generation and they're the people that are gonna be getting involved in conservation in the future. And they're the generation whose lives we've basically mucked up through how we've been living and destroying our planet. Let's talk about solutions because we're living in a world that is changing rapidly. Our environment is changing, the human world is changing, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and our societies are shifting in the way we live. What are some of the, the solutions that you are aware of that can give us a little bit of hope about what's going on? Because as we know, there's up to a million species that are facing extinction and potentially rising all the time because of human activity. Are there any projects or are there any initiatives globally that are that are happening that are really kind of pushing the forefront for, for conservation? Yeah, I mean, obviously we are aware that for large-scale change, we really need our systems to change. We need to use our vote and we need to use our power as individuals to change the way that we're functioning. But 
that's not something that's happening today. That's not something that's happening right now. So I don't think we should ever dismiss the importance of individual solutions and conservation projects that are happening across the world that are doing things right now on the ground to really make a difference to the world as it is in its current state. And a lot of that is actually being done with technology. You know, there are 3D printers that people are using to print new beaks for birds that have been entangled in plastic and had to have their beaks amputated. The same for dolphins with flippers. They have these citizen science initiatives that they're now employing in the Amazon rainforest where they're distributing these acoustic monitors that basically detect things like the noise of motorbikes or the noise of a chainsaw linked directly to people's phones who are working on the ground there. And that means that if they hear this sound, they can get out there and try and stop that illegal logging or illegal poaching of animals. Technology can have this really powerful effect if we use it correctly and if we distribute it so that it's accessible to everyone. In the modern world, I don't see why we wouldn't use technology to help with conservation in whatever way we can. We have got to this point now where we're literally at the tipping point. We have accelerated the background rate of extinction by over a thousand times the normal background rate. We've created this change so great that we're now in a completely new geological epoch called the Anthropocene. We can't just go on with business as normal. We have to do everything that we can now, adopting all these technologies, using our voice, attending protests, using your vote, using social media to really do all that we can to make a difference whilst we still can. I feel like as a species, we elevate ourselves as mastering and controlling all that's around us due to our supposed high level of intelligence. But despite this intelligence, we're failing to recognize that everything we do depends on nature. From breathing, eating, walking, sleeping, everything we do depends on nature. Where where it comes to individuals, there's a lot of young people such as yourself who want to see change and you're doing incredible work through your artistry but there's a lot of people who don't have your skills your photography skills or your filmmaking or or your um, educational background what kind of things can ordinary people do to to try and preserve um, the world around us because I think there's a lot of very frustrated people who are at a loss as to where we should be going and what we should be doing as individuals obviously you know aside from the obvious like switching to a plant-based diet Is there anything that us mere mortals could be doing? (laughs) I think the word conservationist has a lot of stigma attached to us. It's, you know, in society, we use that word to describe someone that's a scientist or someone that has a degree in conservation or ecology or this kind of like path that not all of us can follow. But the definition of conservationist is just someone doing something to help the world or to help animals. And to me, that means that you use your skill set in whatever way that may be, whether you're a teacher and you talk about conservation to your students or you're a lawyer and you decide to get involved with an environmental law case every now and then. You're an artist and you paint pictures of cows to show people how beautiful, how sentient these beings are. You can make people change with whatever your skill set is. And aside from that, if you're like, okay, activism is not for me, I'd rather sit and I would want to engage, I want to make a difference, but I don't want to do it publicly. You can spend 10 minutes every morning before you have breakfast, Googling top 
environmental petitions to sign today or animal activism petitions UK just sign adding your signature really makes a difference you know we often see these petitions and we think yeah that's great I'll share it but instead of sharing straight away sign it it takes seconds normally sign it because it really does make a difference that's how these things then get to go to court and have legislations passed to try and actually change them and to give these species and people more status which will help conserve them and ensure a better future. Also I think it's important to remember the power of being an individual because I think as a society we've got so wrapped up in numbers and especially on social media it's like oh I've got thousands of followers I am really having an impact. If you imagined standing in a room with 200 people stood in front of you you would be so nervous talking to all those people. You'd feel like, wow, this is a massive talk that I'm about to give. You can have an impact no matter what your size of your following is. If you have 10 people following you and they go and talk about something you've posted about saving the Vikita and they go and tell their mum and their grandma and then your grandma goes and tells her friends, there's this chain reaction. So I think it's really important to remember that and realise that Each and every one of us has a voice and each and every one of us can use it to inspire change. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Speaking of inspiring change, you were involved in a campaign to capture the Humans of Extinction Rebellion, Mm. uh, which was a photographic project. There's been a lot going on with Extinction Rebellion. How do you feel about how Extinction Rebellion is is going as an organization? Do you feel like it's effective? Do you feel like people joining together en masse like this to protest is getting the attention that it needs? Do you feel like uh, as a campaigner and activist yourself that direct action, which are, of which a lot of uh, Extinction Rebellion is about, is actually having the desired results? Because it's very polarizing as an organization. Some people think it's amazing. Other people think it's annoying. Some people are ambivalent to it. I mean, what are your thoughts on it as a, as an, as a method for bringing change? I think it's a hard one, especially as Extinction Rebellion has evolved so much since it first started. Um, There's now so many different subgroups that there's not someone running it or saying, okay, that event is all right to happen. That event stands and aligns with what we believe in and our values. When these things, these movements get so big, yes, they create noise. Yes, they force the governments to listen, but it can also mean that things go wrong and that sometimes you know, these actions are taken that aren't maybe thought through or okayed by everyone in the group. And then they have a negative impact or have negative press. Now, obviously, negative press isn't always a bad thing because it's still press. It's still raising awareness about this group who's taking action, ultimately to try and make a better future for everyone, for our children, for our grandchildren. But I think it's not the be all and end all. And if it's something that you feel you're not comfortable getting involved in that. It doesn't mean that you can't get involved in any form of activism or you can't attend any protest. There are smaller ones taking place that you can get involved with as well if that's something that may align with more what you do. But the whole point with the Humans of Exile campaign was to basically put a face and a name to these individuals that were taken to the streets. Don't do that on your own free will. Do not. You can be forced to leave a person. Do not. 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 Do
When we see these articles, it's, you know, Extinction Rebellion did this, Extinction Rebellion did that. But it's not. It's a pregnant woman who was getting arrested. Or it's an old man with three grandchildren at home who he wants to fight for a better future for. These are all individuals and they all have a reason for being there. And I think telling their story makes it much more powerful than what the media would tell in general. And that really helps change people's perceptions then about what they think of this group and think of the activists that are attending these protests and their reasons are then relatable to everyone. Everyone has family who they love or a friend who they love or someone in the world who they want to make the world a better place for them. And then they can relate and understand better why they're taking part in these things, which may otherwise seem like, well, you're making me miss work or I can't get to the hospital I needed to get to because of this action. If they can understand it a little bit more, there'll be less of that anger towards the action, I think. Yeah, I think because the media has a tendency to paint groups of people um, in ways that are quite demeaning or homogenous. They kind of describe people who are involved in Extinction Rebellion as sort of jobless you know, bored people who don't have anything better to do with their time. But, you know, the irony is, is that these people are risking their freedom or their um, security and safety to go out and protest in the streets and, and try and shake the world into, into waking up to what's happening around us. I mean, when you look out into the world, though, and you see the media and you see the way humanity is going, I mean, how do you stay positive about the future of our species with so much kind of at stake like you know the climate crisis the you know um the, the pandemic causing economic turmoil um you as a person like obviously you know you're young and you're kind of full of like passion for the world but what keeps you from just becoming like depressed about the whole thing and just giving up <laughs> <laughs> it is hard especially at the moment where you're kind of seeing news article after news article about all this stuff that's going on in the world but I think it's also important to take the time to switch off and disconnect from what we're reading and what we're seeing. And if you're taking care of yourself and your mental health and taking care of that as a priority, you can then have a bigger ca- capacity to help and take care of other beings. If you're suffering internally, there's very limited things that you can then do because you don't have the energy to engage in activism. You don't have the energy. You're emotionally drained. And if you start feeling like that, I think it's important to remember that, okay, yes, I really want to make change. I really, as an individual, want to make difference. I want to make this world a better place. But right now I need to rest and recharge so that I can do this for a lot longer period than if I invest everything right now and then burn out and feel rubbish about the world. And also surround yourself with a community of people who care and have these similar aspirations to you do and these similar goals to make the world a better place because then you can fall back on these people and say hey you know I'm really suffering because I saw this article today and it's really affected me emotionally and they're the kind of people who understand how that infects you emotionally as well and you can have that discussion and just maintain open communication with people 
because it is hard. It's hard reading this news all the time. So I think it's important to, yeah, recharge, reset, and also try and consume the positive news that's out there as well. Instead of always reading the bad, think, okay, I've read some bad stuff. This has inspired me to keep going. But what's a great story that I've seen? Um, Like the other day, CNN covered an article about a man in Japan who made um, an alternative to plastic bags because he saw the deer in his village were getting hurt by these plastic bags and he didn't want them to be consuming them anymore. And those little bits of hope, those little bits where you think, wow, that's an amazing innovation. That's someone who really cares and is trying to make a difference. That then can be used as fuel to keep going and realizing, okay, not everything is as bad as it seems on paper. Mm. Absolutely. There's always hope as long as there is even just one person, you know, if, if all the world collapsed and there was just one person planting trees one by one by hand to try and rebuild the entire world. You know, that's literally one, like a, like a, like one person, like a one, like one candle alone in the dark. Obviously, you know, it can be pretty lonely at times being an advocate and, and an activist and a campaigner because, you know, we, we find ourselves in what feels like a very selfish world. People are, they go about their days and, 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 you know, selfishness isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. People are just trying to survive. A lot of people are working many jobs to feed their children and they don't have the time to worry about the, the concerns of the world or the animals. And this is, you know, we talk a little bit about intersection, intersectionality and how, you know, as vegans and as plant-based people and as advocates for a plant-based lifestyle, it's sometimes not as simple as just saying to people, stop eating animals, because for some people, it's their only way of survival. That being said, it is a fairly small portion of the planet that can only survive on animals. Do you want to talk a little bit about intersectionality? I know you you discuss intersectional environmentalism. Um, do you want to touch on how you know our food choices um, have an effect on not just animals but people as well? Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to touch upon because. For me as well, when I started my journey as a vegan, it's easy to say every single person should go vegan. This is the best way for every single person to live. This is the only way to live. This is right. Everyone else is wrong. But that's not true. (laughs) We're very lucky to live where we do and have all of these options available to us. Here where we live in England, there's no choice. There's no reason not to be vegan. We have every substitute we could ever dream of. There's vegan magnums, Ben and Jerry's, you know pizzas, pancakes, whatever you want for, you can get in a vegan version. But that's not the same everywhere in the world. And also our food choices with what we may be eating as vegans may impact others in the world as well. For example, avocados and the unsustainable production of avocados, not talking about water use because there are things that do use more water than avocados, but there is a whole ethical issue involving humans with the production of avocados. Same as for palm oil. We always talk about how palm oil impacts orangutans and the ecosystem, but there are massive human rights issues involved in the use of palm oil as well. And I think if the narrative around veganism and our food choices isn't working by getting people to connect to non-human animals, we can shift that and say, okay, our impact, what we're eating in the Western world, impacts human beings, the lives of other humans across the world. And what we may deem as acceptable is literally impacting the ability of someone else, somewhere else in the world to survive and to live their lives. And 
in times of climate change, we're living in this cushy environment where we think like everything's okay because we can't see any of the impacts. There are island nations across the world that are already feeling like, how much longer do we have to live on this island? There are climate refugees all across the world. And I think it's really important to kind of shift the narrative of always being about, you know, I'm vegan because I love animals more than I love humans. Well, that's ridiculous because you are a human. You need to love, part of being vegan is being compassionate and that extends to being compassionate to other human beings as well. If the world goes south, if we don't turn it around, it's humans that are going to be affected. There's still going to be animals. They'll bounce back. But what we're really affecting is the life of other human beings, because if we wipe out humans, we're all gone. Being vegan to me accompanies so much more than just what you eat. It's about your entire lifestyle. Ahimsa is a really important word to me. It means compassion to all sentient beings. And I think this is really important to extend when you're doing vegan activism, to remember that you have this compassion for other humans as well so don't act with judgment on other people remember that everyone's at a different stage of their journey and to get that connection from other people to inspire them to want to listen to you and want to change their own way of life it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if they connect to you and they want to listen to what you're saying i think that we're in a position where we have more understanding and awareness of what we're doing to our planet than we ever have done before and we have the means we have the technology we have the science to change our relationship with the planet Humans have this tendency for short termism, don't they? Yeah. We we, ha- we have a a way of, and maybe this comes from our ancestry of just g- dealing with things one day at a time and not seeing the big picture. And I think this is where environmentalism and conservationism comes in. Is it's about looking outside of your tiny little circle and realizing that every single thing that you do, everything that you buy, everything that you eat, has a consequence and that isn't about sitting there and freaking out and going oh my gosh I can't live because I'm worried about stepping on an ant if I go outside but for me as an ethical vegan it's about doing as much as I can do without being mindless and we live in a world where we consume mindlessly you know we're not being mindful of how we exist as people because it's that impact and I think that's what's missing from our society Mm. is understanding the law of karma and you know being a Buddhist it's kind of taught to you in your practice that every thought every word and every action has a consequence everything and that everything is interdependent and that's what's so beautiful about the world that we live in from the tiniest ant to the largest mammal everything is interconnected in a beautiful web of life and human beings are no different to any other being on this planet and that as we slowly snip through the branches or the the web of the wonder wonderful world around us it slowly starts to disintegrate and then suddenly we realize hell we're at the we're in the center of this web not at the top or the bottom or on the side we're in the middle um, and we're snipping away at all these vital pieces like the insects like the bees and i often have these conversations where people with people online and they say you vegans are ridiculous humans are of course more important than animals why are we not more important we can create symphonies and we can do tapestries what can animals do i mean there are so many animals that can create some of them and you could probably tell me some of the most incredible things that that almost seem like beautiful works of art Peter, flower birds that build these. Yeah, tell us some of some of the one. You you must know a few of the wonderful things that animals can do that show supreme intelligence. Mm. 
I mean, there's tool use been documented in most species, um, even parrotfish, which again, we were talking about fish earlier and people not seeing them as individuals. They can use tools, they can use their beaks to crack open things that we couldn't even open with our fingers. We have animals that can learn just by watching from one another. Humpback whales, that's how they learn to lobtail feed. They work in groups to kind of gather up their prey and push it to the surface. And they learn just simply by watching another one and thinking, oh, that's a clever way of feeding. I'm going to try that and I'm going to get involved. We can even see relationships in the animal kingdom formed between different species where one species helps the other and they work together as a team to find food. Like gannets will watch for dolphins or porpoise and The dolphins and porpoise will drive up the fish from under the water and the gannets will come from above and then the fish are kind of gathered in between them and they both reap the benefits of that. Whereas we never kind of think of doing things like that. We have put ourselves on this level as being these higher beings that are better than all of the other animals on the planet, more intelligent, more capable. And that actually comes at a disadvantage to us. Because if we lived in harmony with animals, if we lived in harmony with the world, we would actually be living a lot happier lives. And kind of going back to the idea of the intersection between conservation and human rights, we really have a lot to learn from indigenous communities around the world and how they live at one with the land, at one with other beings. And it's us who's lost that. It's us who have done things wrong. And especially in the conservation sector, there's so much about taking ownership of land and, you know, owning it and protecting it. But actually, we don't know how to protect it properly. (laughs) You know, we see all this stuff about tigers living alongside tigers. And we think, how dare you ever kill a tiger, these beautiful, majestic beings. If a tiger killed someone you loved or they killed your whole livelihood for the year, you would have a very different mindset to that. So we can't point fingers and tell people how to live our lives if we aren't in a position of understanding. And I think the narrative needs to shift in everything, but even in the conservation sector, because we're not going to conserve things if we don't work with other people and we don't learn from them and understand them. That's really where change is going to come from, from shifting this perception of us being these all-knowing beings to, okay, we can learn from everything, whether that be other humans or other non-human animals as well. We talked a little bit about, um, you touched earlier on how animals will bounce back. Let's talk a little bit about rewilding and and what that means. It's a hot topic. I've got loads of books on it on my desk, (laughs) which I'm yet to wade through. But the natural world is a wonder. It has this innate power within it to continue to survive and survival of the fittest as, as we call it is the nature of the universe that the species that are the most successful that get through it are the ones that end up on top and you know obviously humans are on top at the moment we're the most prolific species on the planet next to farmed animals i think you know wild animals make up less than four percent of the biomass which is horrifying when you think about it you know it, it's no longer planet earth it's sort of planet farm animal <laughs> what rewilding let's talk about like how we can help repair nature what are some of the things that are happening and what are some of the methods in which we can bring life back to to any part of uh the earth which has been pr- 
previously desecrated by humanity. Yeah, the concept of rewilding is really amazing because it, again, kind of removes humans as being this higher, all-knowing being and reminds us that it's nature that is this perfectly constructed system that is designed to keep going and going and going infinitely. There is no such thing as being unsustainable in nature because every system in nature is sustainable. Everything is pushed back through the nutrient cycles and it's designed to work perfectly. So the concept of rewilding is instead of always thinking, okay, what can I do to help? How can I change this land or how can I put this species here or there? It's about taking a step back and letting nature rewild itself, letting nature go its course to what it should be and just allowing that to happen. And yes, we can help. We can do things to redo the wrongs that we've done throughout our history. Like here in the UK, we are now reintroducing beavers. Um, the first beavers to be reintroduced were actually a unknown <laughs> a beaver pair that ended up in the River Otter in Devon. But through campaigning and the beaver trial, we've seen that actually beavers are important for the landscape. They ensure that we have these properly functioning rivers, which benefits us as humans because it reduces the chance of flooding. It makes the surrounding land more productive. We have other species like water voles, kingfishers, otters thriving again, which we haven't had for years. By just letting nature run its course, by letting nature do what it should be doing, there's the classic example of well, as well in Yellowstone Park, where they reintroduced the wolves and the whole ecosystem then went back to functioning in the way it should. And that's kind of the concept of rewilding, not, okay, what can I do? What have I learned? How can I get involved? It's okay, how can I allow nature to do what it needs to do to recover from what we have been doing? Yeah, the British Isles, uh, I think, were once covered in ancient um, forest forest land, and now most of it is for grazing sheep mm. and cattle. Habitat loss is a is a is a big problem on our planet. We're chopping down trees and forest at an unprecedented rate. You know, again, re- rewilding and reforesting. Obviously, it's it's not a perfect system because it takes thousands of years for these beautiful forests to form. Things seem again not to get go to the darker side again, but things seem to be heading in the wrong direction when it comes to deforestation because of animal agriculture. How how bad is it out there? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty bad. I mean, even the change in farming practices, we know that farming has intensified. We know that we're now farming more farm animals than there are left wild animals on the planet. We know that. of the food grown on the planet, maybe more than that, is for livestock, not for humans. And we talk about how there's a food shortage for human beings. We know all of this, but what we don't know is the farming practices have actually changed as well. I mean, if we're talking about the UK alone, we've removed the hedgerows, which are a vital nesting area for birds and insects. We have increased our use of pesticides, which increase things like air pollution the air that we all breathe that we need to breathe to live like breathing is the most basic thing it's the first thing that you do when you're born it's the thing that you know how to do instinctively and we're impacting our breathing by the way that we're living our lives 
Fertilizer use causes nutrient runoff into the ocean, which causes algal blooms and red tides, which causes death in fish and dolphins and turtles. You know, it's not just these things that we commonly talk about with farming. There's this whole other multitude of issues that stem from farming that we don't commonly talk about because it's too much. (laughs) We can only take on so much information and feel empowered to change. And it's very easy to kind of have your mind open and your eyes open to these things and start learning more and more and more and then kind of think, okay, what can we do now? We've done so much. How can we get back from this? Mm, I agree. I think that's it. Most people feel overwhelmed by it, but let's run a scenario. So let's fast forward, you know, hundred years into the future. Pretty much all the wild animals have gone. Um, Humans have, um, this is a possible scenario, humans have really eradicated all other forms of life other than cows, chickens, pigs, probably cats and dogs. What, what, What kind of world, what will that look like for the biosphere? Like, you know, can we, would we be able to live without all these species because they are obviously 4% of the biomass, if we did lose them all, and obviously the, 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 the reality of losing them is devastating and it's heartbreaking, but if we can't stop this runaway train, which is our species, what is, in your opinion, like the impact on us, on our society, really? I mean, if we lose our biodiversity, humans are lost as well. We need animals to survive. They provide the oxygen that we breathe I think one in nine breaths comes from a phytoplankton in the ocean. They provide the food that we eat. I mean, unless we're going to just live off animal flesh and have no form of (laughs) vegetables, but then how are those animals going to eat? You know, we literally could not live without other species. We wouldn't survive. We'd wipe ourselves out and we are causing our own extinction which seems absolutely crazy because if you think of the whole principle of survival of the fittest and how nature has evolved, it's all about doing all that you can to ensure that you survive and that you pass your genes onto the next generation. And humans are the only species that are aware that they're leading to their own extinction. And instead of trembling in fear, like we have these conversations on a day-to-day basis as if it's normal, like terrifying this should be the most scary thing that causes everyone to run and panic and think okay I need to change everything I don't care I want I want to live I want my children to live I want to why isn't it on front why isn't on why as Greta Thunberg often says why is it not front page news every day all day like the coronavirus pandemic is we're all talking about coronavirus all day every day and the impact on our economy but the long-term impact of climate breakdown and species loss is going to be infinitely bigger than that. It's almost as if it's like right in front of us and we can't see it, but we can see it because we know it's happening. Do you, I mean, do you ever feel infuriated by this idea that, you know, we know what's going on, we have the solutions in our hands, but yet there doesn't seem to be the political will to to make any real changes instead of these very what's the word piecemeal uh, changes or always seem to sort of just play into the hands of corporations who just want to plow the earth for more and more resources yeah it really baffles me i find it really hard to understand and it's hard to then communicate with other people if they're not on that same mindset you know coronavirus as we just touched upon is a really big thing 
And it's made people realize how interconnected we are across the planet. But it also has made people realize that we have a messed up relationship with other animals. That's how it started. It also made people realize that there are communities living in all parts of the world, even in England, that are disproportionately affected by things like viruses. And even that has not led to system change. And when we realize stuff like this, it's hard not to be angry. It's hard not to think, what's it going to take? If it takes a global pandemic that's killed millions of people, how much more do we need for people to stand up and say, okay, it's time to stop and change today? Not in 10 years, not at 2030, not at 2050, but today, right now, we need to stop and make a difference. I, th- I think that hum- most of humanity will only stand up and wake up when it's too late, unfortunately. I think that's just the nature of our species, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I think that we have to start to accept that we are part of a destructive um, species. I have actually many times said, and, and many people don't like it when I say this, but I do believe that Homo sapiens sapiens needs to be redefined as an invasive parasitic species. Mm. that as as horrible as it is to acknowledge this we need as a species to look at ourselves a long hard look in the mirror and realize that we are we and our behavior on this world has become parasitic and that we do not live as a symbiont we do not live in symbiosis with the natural world we have somehow lost our connection to gaia if we can call it call it that and that the balance the beautiful equilibrium that has was in 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 perfect harmony two hundred thousand years ago before we arrived, is completely shattered. Mm-hmm. Um, we've upset the balance that is so essential to every part of our lives. If we don't change, um, that will all be gone. And I and I really find it hard to articulate really the the sadness I feel about the future because I think human beings are capable of so much we have the power in our hands to to be incredible creators and not destroyers you know we have all the tools all the ideas it's just that our current economic and political systems just seem so it's like they've got their heads in the sand or they seem blind it's it's infuriating but as we said in the beginning there is always hope because there's, there are people fighting for change and as long as there are people fighting there will always be hope and as dark as the future may seem you know there is hope and and you know we there will always be something right? (laughs) Even if we destroy most of it, there will always be something. There's a growing community of people that are really striving for change now more so than ever. Even if I think back five years ago, to if we're purely talking about veganism, (laughs) to how easy it was to walk into somewhere and order vegan food to how it is today, or how many people you could talk about climate change with, and have a really good discussion about it rather than it being something as, oh, that's a load of rubbish. I don't want to talk about that. There is this shift taking place. It's just a question of, is this happening quick enough? And can we pick mm. up the momentum quick enough? Yeah, make a difference? I agree. I think, I think there is there is momentum, but we need to push more. One of the other really cool things you do is a Zephyr Eco Market. Um, now, I have a feeling that we we have have we met before in person? Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, because I suddenly remembered that I bought an eco egg from you from the market. Yeah, that was actually um a venture of mine whilst I was still doing my undergrad. Yeah. I came downstairs one day and said to my parents, I want to start a business. 
whilst writing my dissertation and they were like oh gosh please don't it's it's so funny because when I first um saw your images and stuff I was like she you are Roxy is so familiar where do I know Roxy's face from but then we started talking or whatever and only now since I was researching you um did I realize that uh you run this market and then I suddenly thought I saw the eco egg which is this amazing piece of technology where you have this sort of plastic egg filled with these little ceramic beads and you pop them in your your washing machine and it's what 60 plus 70 more than actually it's like 300 washes or something like that it lasts half a year no more needing uh, plastic bottles of detergent and washing powder tell us about zephyr eco market because i think it's such a cool idea selling selling these kinds of low waste zero waste products yeah so the idea for that was basically realizing that we are not living in a sustainable way in the western world and that many of us have the power to change if it was easy to do so it's just not a common practice at the moment to live in a sustainable way to use things multiple times to buy things that you can use multiple times because things are now designed to be this fast-paced consumer lifestyle where you can just grab things on the go use it once and dispose of it and not think of it again so Zephyr basically means it's a breeze that travels through the environment without causing any disturbance. And I wanted that to reflect my vision for how humans should live their life, not like a hurricane destroying everything that we touch and consume, but gently. Obviously, our impact is going to be felt, but it's not going to be destroying anything. So the idea of the website is to have a whole range of different products that allow people to make really simple swaps to their daily lives to just live in a way which minimizes their impact on the planet and on other beings. And through that, I work with two charities as well, um, One Tree Planted, and I support their Indonesian project, and they help to reforest areas in Indonesia that have been destroyed and then Painted Dog Conservation UK, my favourite species. Um, and they have a base out in Zimbabwe where they employ local people to remove... Oh, amazing. I was born there in Zimbabwe. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so you must have seen many of them yourself then. They have lots of names. Cape Hunting Dog, African Hunting Dog, Painted Wolf. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the uh, the Shona name. I've completely forgotten. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> what a what a wonderful thing to be yeah to be doing to remove snares from the wild yeah. that would otherwise yeah. trap um, living beings. And the problem with snares is that they're not species specific. So anything that walks through them, they will um, trap and they will kill them. And they actually transform these snares into artwork. Um, so you can purchase the artwork and then all the money goes back into these people's salaries so that they can still earn a living through wildlife in their area, but through helping the wildlife um, rather than feeling like they need to be involved in, say, the pet trade or poaching for medicine or rhino horn or whatever it may be as a way to earn a living. Wow, amazing. So many wonderful projects. And we will include any links to any of these organizations, uh, including Zephyr Eco Market in the description of this podcast. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one last question. So if it was you and a pig on a desert island, 
uh, and you were stuck there, <laughs> you obviously don't eat the pig because you're vegan. What would you take with you if I could give you one book, one music album, and um, one vegan dish? What would you What would you take with you? Ooh, <laughs> okay. Book would be Think Like a Monk by Jay Shetty. That is an incredible book that I would really recommend about how we can live in a mindful way in the modern world. Music wise, I'd probably take like a Disney classic compilation so I could have a good sing along to Disney tunes on the island. And vegan dish. Ooh, that's the challenging one. Probably a good vegan burger. I'd have to go for Beyond Burger or something. Amazing. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Ms. Roxy Furman, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. What a pleasure it is. We probably could have speak, spoken for another hour long. There's infinite topics are under zoology and biology and animals. And I'd love to get you on for another episode in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. It was a delight talking to you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, animals, technology, and everything else in between.